thank you, uh, Drew and the rest of the band, for, for leading us in worship as we prepare to go to the Scriptures. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 16 today, so the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Um, we're going to be reading through verses 14 through 17. And as you flip there, let me remind you, church, that since the beginning of the gospel message, there have always been false teachers and false gospels to arise. Always. Since the beginning, there has been conflict that has come up over the gospel. I think back to uh, Gnosticism. And Plato, who was a proponent for that, Gnosticism was a belief that everything that was here in the world, all the physical things in the world, was all evil and wickedness, and all the spiritual things, they were all good. And so the idea was that Jesus could not be a man because that would mean he was partly bad. It's a false teaching, it's a false um, and a wrong and a heretical view. You had Arius who proposed Arianism and his heresy was so, was so big and so profound and such a disturbance that the church actually called a council in 325, they called the Council of Nicaea to discuss the Arian controversy. And it's historically well known that during that council, St. Nicholas, and I do mean that, St. Nicholas, walked up and slapped Arius in the face for his heresy. But ever since the beginning of the gospel message, we have had wrong views being spoken and being taught. And that is no different in today's time. Uh, many of you know that before I came to be the children's pastor at uh, what was Center Crest, and now here with the same congregation at North Clay, as the children's student pastor, before that time I was the youth pastor at Ridgecrest Baptist, and one of my dearest and closest friends served with me on ministry there. His name was Raphael. Raphael grew up in a very, very difficult surroundings and very hard uh, lifestyle growing up. He and his brother, although they would have claimed to have been Christian, they certainly were not. They were not believers. They had not been saved by the gospel of Christ. His brother Reggie actually committed several crimes many of them having to do with drugs and abuse. He was also sent to prison for committing a crime of second-degree murder. And Reggie was assigned by the judge. He was given two life sentences, but the option for parole was there. The judge looked at him, and the judge said, if I ever see you in my court again, then I will throw everything I have at you. Every law 
that I can throw at you, I will. That was Reggie. That was Raphael's brother, one of my closest friends, Raphael, his brother. Raphael was no better off. He was a pagan as well, didn't have any interest in the true gospel. Um, he grew up hearing the gospel, didn't trust in it. But once Reggie was thrown in prison, Raphael began to take some serious hard looks at the gospel. Reggie also started to recognize his fallen state. And it was only a short time after Reggie was thrown in prison that Reggie, praise God, was saved. Uh, there was a prison ministry there and they preached the gospel of Christ to Reggie. And Reggie became a true believer. He wasn't just wrapped up into cultural Christianity that he had been sucked into before. No, he found Christ to be infinitely valuable and the gospel to be good news. That was very shortly after he was thrown into prison. Wrath made the statement of Reggie, he's got that jailhouse religion. But Raphael, praise God, was saved a few months later through the proclamation of the gospel. Reggie, his life was changed immediately. Everybody in the prison recognized it. Everybody who had worked with him noticed the change. The gospel had taken root. It had taken effect. And Reggie came up for parole. His family was able to raise the funds for it. They knew about his conversion. They refinanced houses. They did what they could so that he could be released. And the same judge who threw him into prison was there at his parole. And even that same judge who said, if I ever see you in my court again, I'll throw the book at you. That same judge saw the difference in Reggie's life. Because the gospel had taken effect. The true gospel had taken effect. But because they were new converts, Reggie and Raphael, they didn't know what to be looking for inside the church. And one of the people, or one of the, the members of the prison ministry, said to Reggie, hey, there is a speaker coming to a church. You're going to be out on parole. You need to go and you need to hear this speaker. You've got to hear this guy. He's amazing. He's incredible. He's a prophet. So Reggie, when he gets out, he goes and speaks to Raph. He says, hey, I know that we've only been believers for a couple of months, but there's this guy who's coming to this church and I've been told to go see him. Let's go see this prophet. And I use the word prophet very loosely there. Because they go to this service to hear the prophet and they waited at that service for over an hour for the prophet to arrive. The prophet was late due to unforeseen circumstances. It's not that too over for just a moment. But when the prophet arrived at the service, there was a show, there was a spectacle that rivaled anything you could see on television. And he's going around and he's proclaiming prophecy to this person over here. And that person over there gets a prophecy. And you get a prophecy. And everybody gets a prophecy. And hallelujahs are being declared. And a 
great time is being had by all except for two people sitting there. Reggie and Raph, who have encountered at this time the true gospel of Christ. They have seen and experienced the transformative work of Jesus and only Jesus. They recognize that this prophet who is promising riches here on earth, this prophet who is promising health to that person over there and wealth and prosperity, that guy, that prophet, he's offering nothing. Nothing that draws me to his message. He never turned to the scriptures. He never told them about Jesus. Rather, he pointed them in the direction of worldly goods. And they both recognize the farce and they decide, looking at each other, we need to go. We need to get out of here. This guy is not preaching a true and real gospel. This guy is a false teacher. And so Reggie, after only a few months of salvation in his blood, after only a few months of new life pulsating through their veins, they can see the difference. And they get up to leave. And as they get up to leave, this prophet looks at them and he says, Stop right there, boys. And these are, um, Raph is a, a very tall black man. Reggie's not quite as tall, but he's still an imposing looking guy. And this prophet walks up to them and he says to them, Boys, wait a second before you leave. I understand you've got to go, but I have a prophecy for you. And he looks at Raphael, my friend. He says, Young man, you are going to play in the NBA. <laughs> So that's funny hearing it. If you know Raph, it's hilarious. Because I'm telling you that some of our students have much better basketball skills than Raphael does. And none of them are ready for the NBA. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. To Reggie, he looks at him and says, Brother, you will have a beautiful foreign bride for your wife, and you're going to be happy. That was the declaration that this prophet gave to Raph and to Reggie. And, of course, they, they're, they're just interested in getting out, so thanks. As they make their way out the door, the prophet follows them out, and he grabs his assistant. It was one of the ladies who came in with him when he got there late. And Raph heard him say to his assistant, Make sure you get an offering from them before they leave. Scenes like that take place all over this country and all over the world. And it should cause for us a sense of disgust. It should cause for us a sense of gravity that there are many Many who proclaim to know the gospel of truth, that proclaim to know the goodness of the Bible, and they hand people a bill of goods that will amount to nothing. And I challenge you, North Clay, at the 
offset at the beginning of this message, settle for nothing less than Jesus Christ. Because the moment we start turning our eyes and our affections to anything else, we'll get wrapped up and sucked into the same problems that those in Jerusalem were wrapped up in in our text this morning. So, let's read very quickly our text. And we're about to meet false teachers. And these false teachers, they love money. And they love the same things that that prophet loved. And they're going to be willing to offer those things and provide those comforts, but they know nothing of the goodness of the true gospel. So I'm actually going to back up. We're going to pick up verse 13, and we're going to read through to verse 18. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray, and we're going to dive into those verses. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you and we do praise you. and We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at this scripture and to see the contrast between those who are lovers of money and those who recognize the gospel of Christ and who, as this verse says, forces their way into it. God, I ask that you would give clarity, that this morning you would use me to communicate your truth, and that, Father, we would leave here more in love with you than we were when we came in, that, Father, we would leave here changed, that we would leave here ready to serve you in a world that desperately needs to hear your true gospel. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we ask these things and for his sake. Amen. Let me give you some context very quickly to help you catch up to why Jesus says the things he says. Back in chapter 15, verse 1, we see that now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That means they're drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So they're grumbling at the beginning of chapter 15. And so it's with that grumbling, with that spirit of unrest that's kind of 
being kept quiet here by the Pharisees and the scribes here in the back, that Jesus begins to tell parables. And Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. And he tells the parable of the lost coin. They don't have a problem with that. They recognize that, okay, he's got a lost coin, a lost sheep. That's possession, that's stewardship. He gets the prodigal son. And the parable there is not just merely that a sheep is lost or that a coin has been lost, but there is a son that's been lost and that there's grace given to that son and that it is grace and only grace that can be looked to, the grace of God that can be looked to for our salvation to bring a lost son back into relationship and fellowship with the Father. That is grace and only grace that can bring a lost coin or a lost sheep back home. And so we see these parables going through it and the grumblings are still going on because what's, just, what's this Jesus talking about? What's he going on about? And then he goes into the parable. He turns from the grumbling Pharisees and scribes to the disciples and he tells another parable and Tim went through it last week. It's the parable of the dishonest manager or the shrewd manager. And he's going through it and they're hearing him talk about it. And in verse 8, and, and, and the story just to bring to remembrance what it happens, the master hears about charges that are brought up against his manager, that he's been cheating him, that he's wasting his possessions. And so he tells the manager, you're going to be fired. You're going to be kicked out of your position. And so the manager, in his shrewdness, the manager says, well, I don't have any ability to dig ditches. I'm not strong enough. And I'm too proud in my spirit to beg, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to call in the people who owe my master money, and instead of you owing a hundred hundred, bushels of hay, or excuse me, uh, bushels of wheat, uh, well, you, instead of owing a hundred, you write the bill for eighty, and and you owe a hundred measures of oil, well, you take your bill and and write fifty. And so he does that so that when he is fired, maybe those people will receive him. Maybe they'll bring him into their dwelling. Maybe they'll be making friends with him. And in verse 8, and the Pharisees, you've got to wrap your minds around this. The Pharisees, as they're hearing this story, these Pharisees who we know from Luke's commentary are lovers of money, they're sitting there and thinking, wait a minute, he squandered his money and then before he's even getting a chance to be let go and fired and kicked out, he goes and wastes more of his master's money. Man, this guy is going to get it. This guy is going to be thrown under every bus that there is. This manager, this wicked manager, he's going down. And in verse 8, a shift happens, and the master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He commends him, and the Pharisees, wait a minute. He just lost money. He just lost possessions. He just lost things that are valuable. And we get the commentary that says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And you get this sense that to this rich man, to this manager, yeah, I lost money. Oh, well. 
it's only money, it's only possessions. That manager was shrewd. He commends him for his shrewdness, but it's almost a sense, if we read it with a tone, the master commends the dishonest man for his shrewdness. Wow, that was really shrewd. Wow, you, you figured that out. Good for you, pal. Good for you. Because at the end of the day, it's just money. And I don't care if this dishonest manager is more shrewd in the things of the world than I am. It's just money. It will not account for anything at the end of the day. At the end of the day, I can't keep it. At the end of the day, it won't be mine. At the end of the day, I'll be buried and not a single cent will go with me. I don't care if he's more shrewd in the world than I am because I have light. I have life. And that's far more valuable. And the Pharisees, when they hear, wait a minute, this guy's money was squandered and you're telling me that he doesn't care about it because that guy is so wrapped up in things of the world and this master is wrapped up in the things that are of light and he doesn't even hold tightly to the things of the world. They move from a sense of grumbling to in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They moved from a sense of, you hear this Jesus over here, can you believe what he's doing, to making fun of him openly for the things that he's saying. You mean to tell me he doesn't care if he loses money? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You mean to tell me that he loses possessions and he doesn't care? Jesus, you're out of your mind. Jesus, you cannot, cannot be speaking sanely. They move from grumbling to ridicule. And it's at this moment that Jesus turns from talking with the disciples in a parable to the Pharisees. And he's going to say the harshest things to the Pharisees, I think. He's going to say the harshest things to the Pharisees that he says in all of the Scripture, except for in Matthew 23, which you had read earlier in our service. He turns and he looks at those Pharisees, at those lovers of money, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And Jesus is going to speak to them now plainly, almost in the sense that, you didn't like the parable? You're going to hate when I just talk to you in plain speech. You didn't like what I said before? Well, then let me address you plainly. Let me not mince words at all. And let me just call you to the carpet right there where you stand. And he, as I've looked through this passage, I think we can see four different areas that I'm going to try to bring to light. Two of them are indictments. And then the last two is a stark contrast to the indictments that he gives. But the first thing 
that he looks at these Pharisees and the first thing that he speaks to them plainly about and that he throws them under the bus about is, or the first thing the text throws them under the bus about is their worldly appetite. These Pharisees have no appetite for the things of God. They have no appetite for the things of light and life and gospel. No, they have an appetite for the things of the world. And how do we know that? Verse 14, Luke's commentary tells us plainly the Pharisees who were lovers of what? Lovers of what? Money. That's a worldly thing. That's a worldly possession. An appetite for money, for pleasures here on the earth. So many churches today fall into this trap of speaking and promoting worldly pleasures and goods, of trying to put those things that are in the world as the great good and hope of the gospel. If you don't believe me, watch a Joel Osteen sermon for two minutes, and you'll hear it. He recently made the statement, he says, in his sermon, and I say that term loosely, he said, people ask me all the time, Joel, are you one of those health and wealth prosperity preachers? And I don't like that. I don't like the idea of being a prosperity preacher because that means I'm only focused on money. No, I think that prosperity is also having health. It's also having success in all of your things. And the congregation of thousands start applauding and going nuts over it. Because, yeah, yeah, the great pleasure that you're preaching about, the great good that we're wanting to hear and that you're giving us, it's worldly things, man. It's health, it's success, it's prosperity. Hallelujah, we can have good things here on earth. And people eat it up. I'm not going to name the church. I am going to read something to you, though. This is from, they don't hide it. This is on their website. The largest church in the state of Alabama, the second largest church in the country, under their statement of what we believe, says this, it is the Father's will for believers to become whole, healthy, and successful in all areas of life. But because of the fall, many may not receive the full benefits of God's will while on earth. That fact though should never prevent all believers from seeking the full benefits of Christ's provision in order to better serve others. And the way they define it, Christ's provision, our full benefits, they define it this way, spiritual, mental and emotional, physical and financial. Guys, this is coming out of the American church. This is coming out of a church that's not very far from our doors. They don't hide it. If you have a worldly appetite, if your desire is the things and the pleasures of this world, then you're not going to hide that. No, of course we want you to have 
all of the things you want in this world, and God wants you to have all of the pleasures in your life. God wants you to have all of those things. Here's the thing. If you can make God, if you can say that God is all about worldly pleasures, that He desires most for you to have things of this world, then what you do is you take God off of the pedestal of being the greatest and highest good of the gospel, and you make Him a means to an end. You make Him a stepping stool on the way to getting riches and health and wealth and prosperity. But Jesus spoke to them plainly, no one can serve two masters. You're either going to have a worldly appetite or you're going to be a son of light. You're either going to desire the things of this world or you're going to desire the things of God. There is no reconciling them. If you lose things of this world and if you're a son of light, you say, Fine, take whatever you want, world. I have life, I have light, and I have the gospel of my Lord Jesus Christ. James 4.4, he speaks plainly when he says that whoever makes himself a friend of the world is an enemy of God. In Matthew chapter 6, very quickly, I love this. Christ himself, in verses 19 through 21, says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve both God and man. You cannot serve money and God. You cannot have a worldly appetite and an appetite for the things of God. They do not go together and so Jesus in hearing their words and in knowing where their hearts lie and Luke very graciously tells us where their hearts lie their heart lies with a worldly appetite Jesus turns and addresses them and their scorn is great so they've got a worldly appetite, but not only that, they have a false security. And Jesus goes right to their heart. He goes right to where they're lying at, and he says that they justify themselves before men. But God knows their hearts. What is their heart like? We read it earlier, but it's worth going back to and picking up again. Matthew 23, Jesus Christ himself tells us where their hearts are, what their heart looks like. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's the condition of their heart. They have given themselves a false security. They've whitewashed their tomb. They've cleaned the outside of their plate. They look really good, but God knows their heart. Man sees on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And this is not merely a condition of the Pharisees. That's not merely something that they struggle with. Not only do the Pharisees offer themselves up a false security, but we do the same thing. When we desire things of the world, when we desire fleshly things, when we go after those things, our first inclination is to do the same thing that they did, and we desire to give ourselves a false security. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 tells us this, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. Don't follow your heart as every Disney movie will tell you to do. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, it's wicked. And if your heart has not been changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, then your heart desires and longs for only those things that are of the world. And the Pharisees were in that camp. And so are many of us today. Mark chapter 7, quickly, I want, you to, I want you to see that these are not just merely my commentaries, but that they're all throughout Scripture. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, tell us this. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. The first thing we want to do when we're confronted with our own wickedness, when we're confronted with your desires are not set toward God, is we want to give ourselves a false security. And that's what these Pharisees had done. They longed for worldly pleasures. They longed to be justified in their pursuit. And we are no different today when we hear preachers get up there and twist Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the pleasures of your heart. And what they, des- what they define the pleasures of your heart as is health, wealth and prosperity they twist the scripture so they say see God wants you to have the desires of your heart God wants you to have nice things you know they never define the pleasures of your heart as love joy peace patience kindness they never define the pleasures of your heart as Jesus the one and only Savior of the world. No, they define it as a car or money or health or prosperity. 
They'll twist verses that even our Lord said, like John 10.10, where it says, The thief come only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. They sit there and say, You see, God wants you to have an abundant life. God wants you to have pleasures in this life. God wants you to have all that you set your mind to. And what they don't recognize is that there's so much more life than just this world. And if your abundant life is happening right here and now, if your best life is now, then you must not be going to a better life in the hereafter. If your best life is now, then you must be going to hell. And we say in our minds, I know that what I'm doing is wrong. I know that what I'm doing is sin, but, but God knows my heart. Guys, these verses should terrify you because God knows my heart. The Pharisees quoted Scripture, but they never bowed their knee to whom it pointed. And they used the law, they used the Scripture to twist it and to use it as a weapon to condemn others and to justify themselves. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, it says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We live in a time where people have itching ears and they desire to have them tickled. And we must, if we are to call ourselves people of the gospel of Christ, we must be willing to pull out that and say, I don't care for the pleasures of this world. I care about Christ and let me tell you about him. And if we're not willing to go to that place, then we fall prey to the same, the same false teaching, the same fool's gold that the Pharisees were in. Quickly, with the time I have remaining, I want to show you the contrast now between what the Pharisees loved and how they justified themselves to seeing what Christ presents to them. So I want to move to the kingdom of God. He says here in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. John who? John who? John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. I want you to hear what Jesus himself says about John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 11, John's in prison. He has 
sent some of his disciples to Jesus because he's in prison. Even John, even John kind of gets wrapped up in, I mean, if Jesus is really bringing the kingdom around, if he's really bringing the kingdom around, I'm, I'm here in prison. Is he, is he really the Christ? Is he, is, he really, is he really him? Even John gets wrapped up in that a little bit. So he sends his disciples to Jesus. In Matthew 11, verses 7 through 11, it says, As they went away, oh, excuse me, Jesus' um, response to the disciples, he says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so Jesus says, you want me to tell you if I am the Messiah, let me show you that I'm the Messiah. And then the deaf start being able to hear and the blind start being able to see and, and the lame people start walking and lepers are cleansed. He says, I'll prove to you who I am. I'll show you. And John would have known that those were things that were prophesied about the Messiah, that only the Messiah could do those things. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women. And who's been born of women? Is there anybody here who hasn't been born of a woman? No, we all have. That's everybody. Of those born among women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So let me kind of unpack that. John was the last Old Testament prophet. Jesus himself says it. The law and the prophets were until John. That the law and the prophets, their age was done after John. Not that they were erased. Not that they were cast aside. No, but that they were fulfilled up until John. John was the last one because John had a job before him. John was the last Old Testament prophet, and his job was to look at the Messiah, was to see the Savior of the world, and to say, that's him. That's the guy. That's the one who will save us from our sin. And he does that. In John chapter 1, verse 29, when he sees Jesus coming up to the river, what does he look at Jesus and do? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these Pharisees had been so ingrained in justifying themselves through the law. And in just a moment, I'm going to show you one of the most perverse ways they justify themselves through the law. They'd gotten so ingrained with that that they could twist the Scripture any way they felt like it. And Jesus says, that's not going to help you here because the law and the prophets were up until John. But since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. You're in a different age because Christ has come. 
And then he makes this weird statement. He says, and everyone forces himself or his way into it. What in the world does that mean? You've got, since then, the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Well, it can't mean everyone because the Pharisees weren't forcing their way into anything with Christ. So it can't mean worldwide, every person all across the globe, everyone. So what does it mean? It means that everyone who is in the kingdom forces his way into it. Now what does that mean? Does it mean that we can somehow tell Jesus, you know what Jesus, let me in your kingdom. Is that what it means? No, that's not what it means. In John 6, chapter, uh, or chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus, it's a very familiar story, he's feeding the 5,000 and the people have full bellies and they're really happy with Jesus because who doesn't like a buffet? And they, it says in John 6, 15, they go to take Jesus and they were by force going to make him their king. And Jesus, knowing their hearts and knowing their intent, he left. He didn't let them make him be their king. So it's not that we force Jesus to let us in the kingdom. It's not that everyone's included. So what does it mean? Well, everyone in the kingdom forces their way. And here's why we brought up John earlier. And here's why I think Jesus brought up John as well. Not only to say that the time of the law and the prophets has ended, but also to remind them of what John had done. The time of the kingdom had come, and in order to prepare the way for the time of the kingdom, John had called men to repentance. He was giving a baptism of repentance. Repent of your sins. Repent of the evil things that you have done against God. Repent. Come. Come to God. And then John pointed to the only one who could remove the sins. The only one who could take away sins. It was Jesus. He pointed to him and says, there he is. That's the guy who can accomplish it. That's the guy who can fulfill it. But up until that point, for centuries, the law had condemned them. And they had never seen the Savior. And now, in the hopes that there is a Savior coming, in the hopes that there is a kingdom, people are repenting. People are coming to him. Mark tells us that, all of Judea and Jerusalem, that's a lot of people, came to repent and to trust in the gospel. And so what does that act of repentance look like? It looks like a turning your back to the things of the world. It looks like saying, I no longer want these things. I no longer want worldly appetites. I no longer want worldly pleasures. Rather, I will force myself out of it and into a gospel that promises life. It's not that you force Christ to do anything that he won't already do, but rather it's to say that if I am going to live for Christ, it will be through force because every single step that I take in this world will be met with opposition from the world because I no longer have a worldly appetite, because I no longer have a desire for the things of this world. 
So people are repenting. They're turning their back to pleasures of this world, to the things that the Pharisees loved, to the things that they justified themselves in. And here, they're looking to a kingdom that isn't settling for lesser joys, and it isn't putting a yoke of works on their backs where they have to justify themselves before men. No, this kingdom's joys and works are tied up to the man, Jesus Christ, to the one that John pointed at and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. The Bible says that He gives us our righteousness. We don't have to justify ourselves before men because it's God Himself who justifies us with the righteousness of Christ. And I give this example to students and to kids all the time, it's this. Let me say to you, I would love for all of you to go on a trip to Hawaii. If I told you that, you said, that sounds good. I'd love to go to Hawaii. But then let's say you look at me and say, but I can't go to Hawaii because I'm $10,000 in debt. I say, well, I can help you with that. Let me pay your debt of $10,000. And I go and pay your debt of $10,000. Can you go to Hawaii now? The answer to that is no. My debt has been paid, but I have no wealth. I have no money in order to go to Hawaii. And if I were to say to you then, well, then let me pay for your trip to Hawaii, then what you understand is that your debt has been paid and you've been given riches that allow you to go where only I could have taken you in this illustration. In the same way, the men and the women who were turning from the ways of the Pharisees to Christ, they recognize that there's only one place where my debt can be paid, where my sin can be dealt with, and there's only one place where my righteousness, my wealth, my riches in Him can be found, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I will turn happily from these things of the world, and I will force my way out of them through repentance so where I see the Son of God and where I will trust only in His name. And very quickly, the law is still upheld. And what do I mean by that? These Pharisees might have at that point been quickly ready to jump at the opportunity and say, no, 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 the law's not gone. How dare you say that, that the law and the prophets is gone? How dare you say that they've been erased? What are you thinking? And Jesus says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What does he mean by that? It means that in Christ, the law is fulfilled. It's not left behind. It's not erased. It's not done away with. Rather, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Christ. I know that we're short on time. In fact, I'm over time. Y'all don't tell Tim. But Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. He didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill all righteousness. Not only did he say that in Matthew chapter 3, but over in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, 
He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The kingdom of God is not one that dismisses all that God has done before, but rather it says it has been fulfilled in the man, Jesus Christ. And I will settle for no lesser pleasure. I will desire no smaller joy than Jesus Christ, Him and Him alone. And very quickly, and, and, and when I say very quickly, I mean very quickly. I need to grab verse 18 because it seems to come out of nowhere. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It seems to come out of nowhere. Why did Jesus say that? Why does all of a sudden he go from talking to these Pharisees and, and going from that you should not have a worldly appetite, that you should not justify yourself before men, rather look to the kingdom of God and to the gospel? Why is he all of a sudden going to divorce? Because he's making one more, one more note to these Pharisees. Here was one of their favorite verse, verses to twist. In Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, there is a teaching about divorce. And it says that a man can hand a, a certificate of divorce to his wife for, any, for indiscretion, for indecency. Now, the rest of those verses, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, they all talk about how divorce, it hurts. It ruins, it, it, it upends a family. But these Pharisees would ignore that, and there was, thank goodness for them, there was this guy named Rabbi Hillel who came around just before the first century, and he writes this commentary, and this is what he says. He says, you know what Deuteronomy 24 says? It says that you can divorce a wife for any indecency, and here's what he labeled as indecency. He said, you can divorce your wife. You can hand her a certificate of divorce if she burns your supper. I'm not kidding. I'm so glad there wasn't an amen there. Rabbi Hillel not only says that you can divorce a wife if she burns your supper, he also says, heck, if you find someone you like more, you can divorce her. He made marriage so cheap that these Pharisees, they took that commentary by Rabbi Hillel, and they were applying that, and they were getting divorced and remarried right and left. And Jesus reminds them, you haven't gotten out of the law. Yes, Christ is the fulfillment of all laws given by God but if you think you can justify yourselves by twisting scripture you have no chance and it's imploring to say look to the only one who can fulfill the law don't look to worldly pleasures don't desire to justify yourselves but look to Christ only to him my buddy Raph his brother Reggie, they saw the difference. I challenge you, church, never settle for a lesser gospel.
than one that elevates Christ as supreme, as the joy, as the greatest good of the gospel. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you and we praise you. And I thank you, Father, for your word and how it speaks directly to us in our time. Even though it was written so many years ago, we look and we see that, Father, it applies to us today. And we look and we see a clear sight line to your Son. And, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who's been wrapped up in loving the things of this world in desiring those above and beyond you and your Son, that, Father, today you would awaken to them the realities, the truthfulness of who you are and the greatness of who you are, and that today they would turn, that they would repent of that, and that even though every single day, every single footstep they take in this world from here on out might be a force, might be a difficulty, They will do it with pleasure because they see and they recognize the greatness of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we ask these things and for his sake. Amen.